0: We have a frankly insane amount of fraud resident within our core systems, and it's going to be real painful for a lot of very successful people to realize that they never actually did anything valuable. Candid conversations that might just change how you look at the world. Let's bridge cultures, transcend borders, and build a global family of change makers. Welcome to If by Chance.
1: Noah Healy is a mathematician who wants to take the world's financial waste and redistribute it in a way that he believes could double human wealth. He's created a coordinated discovery market, or CDN, to achieve this and is offering to help you implement one.
0: You know, our finest minds are going into businesses that are effectively scams at this point, because that's where the money is. If the money was in growing things and making things, then those people that were attracted to getting high returns would go there instead. We spend more money figuring out how much we're interested in having food and energy and shelter and clothing than we do on making the products that produce food and energy and shelter and clothing. So I'd like to upgrade economics. A major efficiency gain there uh, would effectively double human wealth. And that's, that's more valuable than anything else I can think of doing.
1: And what are you proposing to do in terms of the economic upgrade? so
0: i have a very specific proposal it's a new kind of mechanism to operate a marketplace that separates the deal into three parts the good being exchanged or service if you've commodified that the money being paid and the information about what that deal is and so three separate markets a prediction negotiation market that works out what that deal structure should look like and provides that openly to everybody on time scales that people who are not professional traders can analyze and decide whether or not they want to join in or hold back. And then two separate open pools to draw together disparate buyers and sellers to create a buffer of secure trade among a large group of people.
1: Can we take a particular example, let's say milk, and look at how it might work using what you're proposing? So let me outline what's happened here in Australia. So obviously we're a relatively small market. Sure. Um, We also don't have many supermarkets. So it's an oligopoly in terms of the retail landscape here. So a few years back, um, and we only have so many processors who take the milk from the farm gate and then turn them into other products. So farmers were finding themselves in a situation where they were signing fixed-term contracts for a number of years agreeing to the price of milk, so the farm gate price. But in the end what happened was farmers were, and that had very high exit costs to those contracts also, So even though the farmers got to the point where they weren't making any money in terms of supplying milk, they couldn't actually exit the contract and it got so bad that a number of farmers were actually committing suicide. So in 2020, there was legislation that was brought in so that the processes, it would be mandatory for them to publish those contracts. So those contracts are now listed on a milk value portal and farmers can go and see what each of the processors have to offer before they make a decision about where they're going to take their milk to market.
0: Sure, sure. Um, in, any, in any market environment, uh, there's an asymmetry where the larger player would prefer to keep the trade secret, and the smaller player has more to gain from publishing it. And so that's one of those asymmetries that always exists, and that's one of the things that's made – Markets less and less efficient. Publishing those is a good idea. Uh, however, with my kind of system, effectively, what could happen is that we could create a open, continuously negotiated milk contract mm-hmm. that has a negotiation market where all the players can come in and negotiate the future conditions of the the contract so the contract can evolve in a way that's publicly viewable in a manner where the attempting to put new negotiated positions in the contract essentially costs that negotiator money. But it then gives them a position on... the the downstream payoffs from that contract if their suggestions are incorporated and ultimately used. And so what happens is you get a situation where on the one hand, large numbers of small players can effectively coordinate their small amounts to achieve parity because at the end of the day, a buyer-seller marketplace, the buyers and sellers have roughly equal power Uh, because everything that is wind up getting bought is going to have to wind up getting sold. There wouldn't be any necessary lock-in at all because those contracts, which are being publicly renegotiated on, say, a week-by-week basis or a month-by-month basis, uh, can be freely exited by anybody at any time because the entire point is to create the ones that nobody wants to exit.
1: Can you explain to me a little bit more about how what you're proposing differentiates or is different from existing market structures?
0: Existing market structures are all based on a deal consisting of a buyer and a seller. So there's a base symmetry that forces a competitive behavior that always exists. So let's say you and I are going to trade some you know, object. Well, there might be multiple prices that we could agree to. Let's say you would buy something from me for as much as $5 and I would sell it to you for as little as $1. Well, we could settle on any number between $1 and $5 and the trade will still happen. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of room for the two of us to win or lose in that scenario. If I sell it to you for $5, you are still buying, but obviously I'm four more dollars richer if you buy it for me for 2 I might have been able to get an extra 3 if I'd been more canny that kind of thing and so that that bar between the two sides creates the room for this system and so there's a tension that always has to exist where you're never sure if you got the price that you might have been able to get if you'd been a little sharper or a little quicker and what that causes is a situation where effectively, when you step into the marketplace, you're competing with everybody in the marketplace. You're not just competing with everyone else that's producing with you. You're also competing with everyone you're selling to. You're competing with people that just show up and have money and, and you know product and are just trading all day long. And they're way better at it than you are. So you mostly lose to them. You're competing with the market operators themselves who can trade their own books under certain rules. And so in my system, I focus the competition to just people doing specific tasks that make the marketplace work better. So imagine, say, well, in the Olympics, uh, the guys that run the decathlon, they don't set any world records in any of the events that they're running because it's hard to compete in lots of things at once and you're not very good at it. If you can specialize, you get a lot better. Uh, So my market effectively creates three entirely new specializations.
1: And can we talk more about um, the information-based portion of your market? Sure. And how that would function?
0: Uh, Yeah. So at the simplest level, you can think of prices as numbers, right? And each price has to be alive for some period of time. So you could take a calendar decide what periods of time are logistically useful. Um, so for milk, for example, maybe there's a a weekly cycle of, of milk usage and transport. Uh, but there's some kind of logistically useful unit of measurement. So for each one of those, there's a price, or they should be a price. And perhaps you want to make it a little bit smaller than that so that you know, if you screw one up, you've got Sort of a backup plan, so maybe there's one a day. Uh, and as people come in, they say, "Well, okay, you your system thinks that three months from now on Tuesday it's going to be the same as it is right now, but I happen to know that, you know, in in the capital they're they're debating some stuff and those those policies are going to get passed and prices are going to go up, or you know, I just saw the the cow weevil." came out and that's going to affect the dairy farms and and so there's going to be a lot of restriction or kids are going to stop drinking milk next week because Taylor Swift said so whatever it is so those kinds of things suddenly start coming in and then people basically say okay for these dates in the future I have these do- new ideas and the system once again it Gathers all that stuff up and it integrates each one in. It measures the difference between your proposal and what the system currently thinks. It measures that uh, the further out it is, the less expensive it is to make changes. The bigger the change is, the more expensive it is. The more used the marketplace is, the more expensive it is. Um, And it just comes up with a number. How much would I have to charge you so you would get? hundred percent rate of return, if you were right, or a thousand percent rate of return, if you were right, you just pick a number, you pick some really, really big numbers. So people want to actually play the game and you do the calculation, you figure out what it is. If they've got enough money, you make the adjustment. If they don't have enough money, you make a partial adjustment. You move it a little bit and you take some of the money or all of it, if that's what they've got. Um, and you record that. And then when people move back across, it's now more expensive because it's contentious. And so this sort of back and forth future negotiation becomes more expensive too, if it, the more and more contentious it gets. And so then once the day rolls around, you've got whatever everybody negotiated settled to, you do whatever trades you get, and then you pay the people who made useful contributions that push the price towards its final destination. You pay them off their share of the commissions that you're operating the market on
1: so is are you suggesting or are you saying that that the people making forecasts would be people like economists or hedge funds people like that
0: those would be options so so if they have insights that's fine um, also people from processing plants uh, people from farms would be making those um, somebody that just decided to get obsessed and learn everything about the milk market could, could sit down in their basement. And if they got good enough at this that they were really making a, a, a meaningful contribution that we could actually measure, they might be able to make a living out of that. Um, it could be people in government. It doesn't really matter who's bringing the information to, to bear.
1: If you put information into your system you also need to put some money down. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So tell me how that would practically work.
0: So the the reason you're you're providing the information is because you expect to get paid for it. And the amount that you expect to get paid is based on the fraction of the information that you're providing. So if you're moving a price by 1%, then you might expect to get one percent of the revenue that's generated by the trades on that day, and that might be a pretty decent-sized number. Um, so, so that's that's what you're trading for. You have to put in enough money to show that you know it's sort of worth it to you to to get that return. You don't just get okay. to get the return for free.
1: So let's say. I'm not made of much. And so I come to the market with some information and I put in a hundred dollars. Sure. And somebody else comes with another piece of information and they put in a thousand. How would that work for each party if both pieces of information were correct?
0: Uh, If they're both correct, then let's say we process yours first so you think price is going up and they think price is going up more and the price winds up higher than at or higher than their final destination. Well, you're 100% correct and they're 100% correct. So your $100 would get a full return and their $1,000 would also get a full return. Um, let's say instead you both happen to perfectly agree with each other uh, and $100 was actually enough to move it to where you thought it went. So you the system says, oh, okay. And once again, you go first, takes your $100, moves to the price. Then it goes to process their $1,000. It says, oh, I already knew this. The price is already where you think it belongs. Here's your $1,000 back. We can't use it. Now, if the coin had flipped the other way in this second case, where you were second, the system would have taken $100 of their $1,000 and said, okay, this is all I actually need. Here's your other $900 back because you it's only $100 worth of information. And then if you came in after, it'd be like, well, sorry, we already know this. Here's your $100 back.
1: And the incentive for me bringing in information to the market is that I get a percentage of the trades done.
0: You get a percentage of the trades and a percentage of the investment capital of people who are negotiating. So it's a paramutual system, but unlike the casino where they rake out some, we pile in some as from the trades that happen.
1: So... Can you give me an example of what I might get?
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, so the market operator can essentially decide what rate of return they want to operate this kind of market at. So within the existing markets, average rates of return run somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 to 20%. With this, it's a parameter. So when you build the market in the first place, you could just decide 100% annualized. So if you were making a guess about something from six months from now, and you turned out to be right, you'd get about a 71% return on that. Um, if, of the and,
1: c- commission portion? Uh,
0: no, on your, on your investment. So your $100 would turn into $171.
1: So it, it pays to have money?
0: Yes, yes. The, the rates of return um, can be trivially made far greater than anything anybody in the financial industry has ever experienced.
1: This might seem like a dumb question, but why would your market make milk producers more money than the structure they've currently got in place?
0: Well, the current structure uh, is going to be controlled by that oligopoly again. Uh, that the individual, when you're down to a, a situation of trading person to person the power imbalance between those two people is always going to favor the one with the more power. And so the milk producers being many and small and probably federally constrained from coordinated action are not going to be in a position to be able to dictate terms to a small number of processors. And so much like the, the beef market in my country, those processors will essentially contain and absorb the market They'll be slowed down somewhat by this publication requirement, but they're still going to do their best to lock people in and do their best to tighten things as much as possible. The more they restrict what the farmers are getting, the more profits they get. And so having an open system based on maximizing the total value of the milk that gets traded would inevitably increase the value that the farmers actually receive. And so that that change of intent that's implicit in the design of my marketplace would force the farmers to become wealthier.
1: Would your system be best placed with those government bodies like the Australian Dairy Products Federation, which is the one that made sure that the legislation came out to protect farmers and make sure that the contracts were transparent?
0: That would be one option. So a a proactive producer or, frankly, consumer association that, that wanted a fair and low-cost marketplace can't do any better than setting up a CDM for themselves. Uh, there are other options as well. Uh, one thing happening for you in Australia, uh, much like everyone around the world that isn't Chicago or London, is that the primary commodity marketplaces are located in Chicago and London. And so uh, things like the price of coal are set on a different hemisphere than than the one you live in, in spite of the fact that producing coal is something you do fairly regularly. Uh, And so somebody being able to create a local market that can actually stand up to the liquidity of the benchmarks, because again, by structuring things the way that I've structured them, that liquidity advantage that causes big markets to swallow small markets in the existing system does not work on a CDM, as long as you're not so greedy that you want to make more uh, a larger fraction than the big market makes. Uh, And so in a country like Australia, with how much commodity product you produce, uh, you could take control of your marketplaces. And that would be a boon to your entire economy because you're essentially getting double dipped. You have to pay on the way out and then on the way back in just to get the pricing so that you can make the deal to actually trade to whoever's actually buying. And so that would, that would cut out an enormous raft of middlemen.
1: From my understanding, the milk farm gate price incorporates the inputs also and the impacts from the global market so it includes, uh, let's say, milk powders that are produced for formulas and protein and fats as well as fertilizer, fuel, that kind of thing. Would your system help with that or is that something that a peak body would still need to come up with when they're determining the price band to start off with?
0: So there's there's two different ways to go about that. One um, – You can develop marketplaces for those other things as well, and then not have to worry about them. Uh, In the case of milk, and this is also true in general of agricultural product, uh, there's a lot of different pieces. So some cows produce very high fat milk, um, and you can make very high-fat butter out of those cows' milk. And that's particularly valuable if high-fat butter is one of those things that you're looking for. Other cows are not good for much more than creating the milk solids for reconstituted milk and those sorts of things. Um, There's protein concentrations. I mean, you know, if cheating can go on at all different sides um you could you could treat your cows in such a way that their milk got waterier and if they were judging the milk simply on volume you could be selling milk that was essentially you know just water at at milk prices and make a lot more money so um quality assurance is an important part of operating a commodity market and coming up with the structure of those things is why I don't simply jump in and build markets for people abinito and just like, Hey, whatever. Um, that sort of expertise is, is not separable from the process of producing a marketplace. And that's where what, what I do is license this technology to people that are in that position that have that kind of insider specialty knowledge to know what is necessary around, making these grades of importance that are worthy of being you know done and and going on with so on penalties one extra option within a CDM type system is that it wouldn't be very difficult to adjust the just from the price but negotiating other aspects as well so that the system could negotiate some of these these side issues as well so you could negotiate certain facts about the production of the milk or its contents and so on and negotiate what the bonuses are rather than just have them be some some bean counter with a spreadsheet that makes a decision Um, most markets are effectively forced to use that because it's so expensive to figure out what these answers should be. They don't have a mechanism for crowdsourcing data and crowdsourcing negotiation. But of course, that's exactly the problem I solved.
1: And you mentioned cheaters. So in terms of cheaters and other bad actors, does your system address that?
0: Uh, well, yeah, you have to. Uh, it's unfortunate. So the, the first big thing is non-delivery is, is a potential issue and with my system it's relatively easy to effectively double-side escrow everything so a non-delivery can can open somebody up to a very extreme legal penalty and you will at least get your money or your product back it won't be just gone um in the case of of non-performance uh and because the only way that you could get into the situation of non-delivery is that you decided to commit more than you presently had available. And the penalty is very great if you're actually called upon to, to sort of make that declaration. There's very little incentive to, to simply broadly cheat by just saying, you know, I'll say that I'll do something, but then I won't do it. And I'll take the money. Um, However, uh, the the sort of more subtle forms of cheating where you, you know, try to pass off sugar, water as honey or something uh, require much of the processes that presently exist within any markets, a system of, of sampling and examination and grading and so on. And I don't really have any useful things to add or subtract from that.
1: And if we look at how existing markets operate and say there was some kind of event – external that had impacted production like a flood or something like that. Would it act in the same way?
0: Uh, Actually, no. Uh, So that's one of the major issues is that the existing markets essentially are so dangerous that the end users effectively pay out all of their risk to the marketplace itself. And so... What happens when these kinds of things occur is that all the windfalls actually accrue to the insiders in the marketplace and the, the producers and consumers generally don't actually respond appropriately. And so you get these very bizarre situations, uh, where people who like had pre-bought electricity, um, suddenly needed to like sell it back out into the marketplace when the COVID lockdowns happened and, and similar kinds of things like that. So what this does is that if there's some sort of exogenous shock that nobody could have seen coming, then there'll be a mismatch in the marketplace, uh, which is going to be a bad you know few days, but that's sort of always going to happen. But that lowers the value of the marketplace because suddenly not as much trade's happening, either consumption is not showing up or production isn't showing up anymore because of flooding or whatnot. And so what the market says is, it says, oh, I was a big market, but I'm a small market now. Like my prices are crappy for whatever reason, they're crappy. And so it becomes much less expensive to negotiate. And so what happens is that the market quickly becomes much more nimble and starts trying to figure out how to negotiate a broad path for the entire marketplace through whatever's going on that, again, is being crowdsourced from everybody from all angles that has something to offer. And so it rapidly finds its new path and then grows back as fast as possible to where it used to be.
1: Let's run through that scenario again, taking the example that a intense rain event and flooding has happened and has destroyed many herds of dairy cattle. Right. Um, What would the price look like in your marketplace?
0: Well, uh, so what would happen is uh, sort of in immediate aftermath, the price can't change, you know, for the day. It's already been pre-negotiated. So the price isn't any different. The consumers still want what they want. So they, they show up like normal, but the producers can't do that anymore. So the farmers just don't show up. And so... The market collapses by 50% of trade.
1: So what about the farmers that haven't been affected by the flood? So in a normal marketplace, you would expect that the price of right. milk would go up.
0: Yes. Well, so for that was that day. Um, now, the farmers can all say, hey, the price of milk needs to go up a bunch. And the cost of changing the market price, because trade actually you know cut in half or more, uh, probably more. The cost of moving the market goes down by 50% or more, probably more. And so it's now very cheap to raise those prices again. And the you'll get that very high rate of return for making those changes. So the farmers can pull back, renegotiate for later in the week or next week or next month, get those prices back up. Um, the price comes up consumption desire goes down production desire comes up to meet it uh and the market equilibrates and the new task of negotiation becomes figuring out how the price needs to evolve through the process of building out new herds to get back to where you used to be and so that's the task for these speculators of working out what those prices are going to be looking like over the course of the next two to three years.
1: So how would your system affect what the consumer would see which is because in the supermarkets, we always see those little notices that says, "You know, there's been an event, which means there's much less production, so therefore you're going to have to pay a lot more for milk." Um, but they're raising the prices higher than they need to. Is there anything you can do about that?
0: Well, again, if these if these open negotiation systems are happening, they would be happening in public. Uh, so a consumer with any degree of curiosity wouldn't necessarily need to wait for. The supermarket to notify them what's going on you could just go look at it happening yourself again it's the kind of thing where you can check it out once a week and it's fine um when i was a young man the the nightly news used to tell us what the closing value of the dow jones industrial average was as if that actually meant anything um mm-hmm. this would be a scenario where you actually could have uh you know something on your cell phone that popped up once a week and told you what the the current trend of, of food valuation looked like if if you were that into home economics
1: So yeah we have a real issue in Australia when it comes to pr- price gouging from our supermarkets here so it sounds like that really won't change. can we talk about the well so
0: it? I would I would moderate that. Having an open marketplace means that new consumers can get on board very easily and small consumers will have an advantage in settlement over large consumers. And so the, the competitive structure, the ability to create new points of access that could compete on price would be a natural feature of a open bilateral marketplace.
1: So would we be shifting from the commodity of milk into the actual products themselves and those being available in the marketplace? Is that what you're saying?
0: So in an oligopoly situation where the large incumbents basically are dominant, um, price gouging the consumer becomes something that's reasonable and profitable. But... If somebody can go into the mini or micro dairy business and be able to gain access to marketplace milk prices which an open bilateral milk market provides then the option to create these smaller dairy things which might not be as productively efficient but could still profitably operate in an environment where price gouging is less available on one side Mm -hmm. or the other and they would be able to price compete by simply choosing to gouge less.
1: And if we go back to the flood event, what would happen to the information providers in that scenario?
0: Well, the erroneous information providers would find some fraction, possibly all of their, as it happens, erroneous information, being balled up and handed over to the people that had to come correct their mistakes just like anyone else that put information that ultimately turned out to be bad into the system
1: so they would lose their money
0: they would lose the portion of their money that was no longer helpful so if there's a price that's sitting at say three dollars and you move it to say four dollars and it winds up at three dollars and a quarter then the 25 cents of movement that you did in the first place is all correct and that's fine and the 75 Mm percent sense of movement you did after that is all wrong and that's you know sitting on the floor waiting to be divided among all the people that are correct which is in some small part also still you
1: yeah so am i understanding this right so let's just say i predicted the price of milk to move to four dollars but because of the flood it actually ends up moving to seven
0: well, so if you predicted it to move from to four from five, you would be totally wrong, because you moved it in the wrong direction. But if you predicted it to move from three to four, you'd be 100% correct, because you moved it in the correct direction.
1: This all sounds very intriguing. How would we get a system like yours implemented? Because it seems like we'd need a lot of players to start with to get it off the ground.
0: There needs to be around a couple dozen uh, people on each side. They don't have to be perfectly evenly balanced, but to get uh, to get the system to equilibrate reasonably, you need about fifty. Technically, forty-nine, but then the operator, you know, comes in as, as your fiftieth participant to to go. They don't have to be fully committed. This doesn't have to be the only thing they're willing to use. You don't need lock in that way, but you do need a a reasonable group of, of people who are going to pay attention and give it some English to get the ball rolling. Um, and the most important of those is that operator or that group of people that will be the operator that needs to set up the appropriate legal structures to operate within whatever actual polity that you're going to run this thing in.
1: And... In terms of fees that the market is taking itself beyond the licensing fee, is there any?
0: So the market charges a commission on the trades that it's facilitating. And that commission again is something that the operator effectively gets to pick. So if you're doing around a billion dollars of trade through the market a year on average, and they pick a number like 1%, then their revenue is going to be around $10 million a year. They then have to decide how much of that they want to peel off to to help encourage the speculators. Um, to put some broad numbers on this, out of that, and this number is very old, but $800 billion of cost in the United States, the CME group, which is the primary commodity operator here in this country they're a publicly traded company they make a little less than a billion dollars in revenue per quarter so they're making roughly one half of one percent of the overhead which is itself around a sixth so they're getting around one twelfth of one percent of the deal flow for operating those markets uh, so with a cdm it would be possible to shrink the overall cost of the marketplace while taking a larger share of the deal flow for the operator at the same time. So existing financial institutions in, I don't know where your financial institutions are, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, I have no idea, but those institutions would be able to underpriced competitive markets in London, Paris, Chicago, New York, while making a larger fraction of their deal flow than their competitors do. And so I've always thought it was kind of a no-brainer.
1: So ideally, you'd want to be talking to regulators, government-type bodies.
0: Ideally, I would like to be talking to financial people who would be actually talking to those people.
1: I can see so many opportunities for this. I mean, even in the energy markets here, which are a complete mess.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It
1: it would be great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It would revolutionize your economy the same as it would for virtually any other country. You guys would get more benefit from it than most uh, because of your stronger commodity production based economy and your stronger links to the anglosphere meaning that you're paying a larger sort of double dipping tax to london and chicago but from you know the the southern tip of tierra del fuego to the the northern tip of alaska or or siberia or wherever the northern tip actually is Almost everybody is using the existing markets for their large scale productive organization, and those markets have been getting steadily uh, well not really steadily but progressively worse for something like half a century now
1: and Can you estimate what it's costing us?
0: Well, the cost on just American commodity exchange was roughly a dollar and six um, So take 16% of your export economy and that's basically assumes that nothing has gotten worse in the last decade. So if you can believe that, you're a better man than I am. Gunga Din. So that's the absolute minimum. It would go up from there.
1: Can you put a dollar figure to it?
0: Uh, The size of... Australia's export economy is, uh, let's see, that'd be $27 billion a year.
1: That seems extraordinary that Australia could save $26 billion a year just by changing our market structure.
0: The, The practical effect of the general adoption of CDM technology is doubling total human wealth. That is a couple hundred trillion dollars right now.
1: I'm sure that's going to be difficult for a lot of people to get their head around.
0: You're right. Well, to there was an unfortunate natural experiment in the 20th century uh, where after World War II, the Soviets were given a sphere of influence of East Germany and East, and the Americans were given a sphere of influence from West Germany and West, and we got to see the progress of European countries under market versus non-market economies and the differential was basically a couple of percent a year well the overhead costs of commodity markets are larger than that difference and the efficiency gains of a cdm could eliminate that difference so the difference between Economies that adopt CDMs and economies that continue to use our existing market structures would be roughly the economic destinies of the Iron Curtain countries from 1950 to 1980 and the non-Iron Curtain countries from 1950 to 1980. And you're on the wrong side of the curtains. We all are.
1: Why can't
0: Bitcoin save us? Bitcoin, unfortunately, got itself attached to the wrong end of the animal. The core concept of Bitcoin and the other kinds of blockchain-based economic uh, conceptions is that the foundational problem with our economy is that the currency is unsound. Now, in total fairness, the currency is unsound, and it isn't great having unsound currencies. However, Plugging an unsound currency into a functioning marketplace gives you a functioning market as existed for most of human history when lots and lots of people have lived without, with unsound currencies and functioning markets and gained incredible wealth and in functioning complex societies. Uh, plugging sound currencies into functioning markets is way better. And yes, if we had functioning markets... Having a sound currency too, which Bitcoin needs to do a few more steps to to work itself up to of you know general adoption and incorporation and so on, which has a lot of problems because it's strictly digital and we're all actual physical beings that live in the real world. Um, but yes, that argument is useful. Having a sound currency would be way better than having the unsound currencies we actually have. But having functioning markets is... Plugging a sound currency into a non-functioning market is as useless as trying to run a command economy on the gold standard. It, it doesn't matter that the money is actually, you know, a commodity that, that sticks around. Um, if all the planning is for, you know, screwed up, then you wind up shipping, you know, empty box cars that you say have furniture in them uh, just like everywhere else. So they, they're, they've done a lot of work, to try to solve what is sadly the wrong problem.
1: And is there anything that you haven't spoken about yet that you'd like to mention?
0: Um, I mean, there's there's a few other fun pieces uh, with this. So speaking of sound currencies, having a, a CDM actually allows the negotiation markets to ameliorate the cantillion effect. Are you familiar with this term? I am not. So Quintilian, um, and it's probably not pronounced that way because I think he was French, but he was an economist who basically d- explained why inflation happens. And he says that when a issuer of currency or a government prints money or creates new currency, then it spends exactly like the regular currency that exists. So the people that get first access to that currency essentially get to make extra money and eventually that money spreads out within the marketplace and the money as a whole loses its value and at that point there's no sort of extra advantage from having this extra money but that doesn't matter to the people that printed it in the first place because they already have the stuff Um, and so this declining value of money as you get further and further from the source of the printing of the money, is the Cantillon effect. However, if CDMs get generally adopted and they turn out to be really effective, which the math says they probably will turn out to be, then it becomes a reasonable thing for for the negotiation market to do to effectively work out the cantillion ahead of time and upcharge based on inflationary action at the forefront. And so effectively ameliorate or even eliminate the value of initial monetary printing, which would then diminish or even eliminate the incentive to do initial monetary printing and create a situation where the people operating existing money systems would have an incentive to make those systems sound because they couldn't make any money by cheating them.
1: So our reserve bank didn't get great reviews over the COVID era in terms of managing our rates of inflation. In Australia, people seem to love buying property and house prices went quite out of control. And so the only lever that the RBA had was to increase interest rates. Do you see that what you're proposing here would make any difference to that kind of thing?
0: Well, on the one hand, um, it for for housing that is actually productive, so people that are buying ranches or, or other kinds of things, if it's much more valuable to be in production, then the actual value of those assets would go up. So having the land to, to have cows on would be very valuable in that case. So that could be theoretically drive prices up even more simply because more value had been created. One of the hard problems in inflation, I've gone through this on other things before, there's sort of three phases of inflation. Phase one is asset prices go up. And everybody loves phase one. Nobody complains about phase one. Phase two is commodity prices start going up. And some people complain about phase two, and some people are happy about phase two. It pretty much depends which side of that fence you're on. Phase three is wages start going up and everybody hates phase three. Everybody hates phase three. And people start complaining about inflation and saying it's so awful that inflation exists and why doesn't somebody do something about inflation? And the problem is the only time you can fix inflation is in phase one when the asset prices go up. Um, And so that's been a, a pretty real problem globally for decades now, Um, some fraction of asset valuations is the result of incredibly unsound decisions by governments and central banks to print incomprehensible amounts of money. And that amount is somewhere between more than 100% and lots and we don't even know what lots is so um that's one of the sort of general issues that's affecting everybody uh, you know i'd expect a a general crack up across the board because these markets are becoming more and more fraudulent and more and more obviously fraudulent and at some point people just decide to check out in civilizations um you know rome decided to stop going to work uh several chinese dynasties went down that way britain went through a few fluctuations where they would sort of you know work on figuring out science and technology for a couple generations and then they'd burn witches for a couple generations and it didn't work out so well to burn witches like that was not a productive way to spend your time so these sorts of cycles are around us all the time. We have a frankly insane amount of fraud resident within our core systems. And it's going to be real painful for a lot of very successful people to realize that they never actually did anything valuable.
1: Is there anything else you want to leave me with?
0: Um well, uh, you know, with a thought that happy, what what really could I you know, follow it up with? <laughs> um, well, I I will. I will
1: you know, we, uh, pitch for on.
0: myself a little bit. I do have a podcast uh, with the former CTO of Reddit, Marty Weiner, uh, called "The Fourth Age," where the two of us talk about uh, the the AI and computer revolution and sort of our belief that this represents a sea change in the nature of human existence and organization and technology and that while certainly everything is going on the scrap heap the opportunity exists to build much stronger much wealthier much happier civilization using these tools uh if if enough of us decide that we want to do that
1: so there is hope
0: absolutely yes yeah like i said Uh, If you scrape together a few dozen people that would like to actually profitably farm down there in Australia, or mine, or whatever, um, this thing is open source overseas, and you guys can start the doubling of human wealth right there. That's fine with me. I'm actually sort of doing a dual strategy. I'm pursuing a patent inside the United States. I'm perfectly willing to license it to people outside the U.S. if you would like you know, my expertise in helping you set things up. But my basic thinking is that if you're setting up a marketplace and you want me to, to, you know, be involved with with helping you out with understanding decision-making, I'm willing to take a small fraction of your small fraction of the action because these numbers are so big, it's it's simply impossible to comprehend.
1: Do you know someone who would benefit from NOAA's CDM? then be sure to share this episode with them. I'd love to hear what you think. So go click the appropriate button via the show notes where you'll find more about NOAA and how to get in touch. Now, dear listener, it's your turn. Have you got something to add to the conversation?
0: Then get in touch via the links in the show notes. Whether you have questions, a message of support, or resources that you think might help, we'd love to hear from you. And if by chance, you know someone with a story that will inspire others, be sure to let us know. Your contributions help turn inspiration into action, drive positive change and make life just that little bit better. And if this conversation inspired you to expand your worldview, head to hellohuman.global to join the conversation.